So we're in week two of this two-week series. Uh, we ended a, a, a series of teaching on the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the month and uh, had some guest speakers. And so I thought, you know, how fun would it be in the light of Halloween, the Halloween season, to do a little uh, series that could, could kind of tie in to some of the things we see in Scripture. And last week we began this series entitled The Zombie Apocalypse. And I know if you've watched TV at all or pay attention to the media, you probably have seen a show like The Walking Dead or, or something to that effect. Uh, my kids are really into this Disney Zombies movie, so much so that I think my daughter was binge-watching Dancing with the Stars because one of the, the actors was on it this year. I don't, I don't know, but, um, but there, I mean, it's just kind of all the rage right now. But uh, the zombie apocalypse has been a topic that's been kind of popular for, for many suspenseful films. And it, the thing that we saw last week, though, if you missed our talk last week, you can follow it or catch back up on our website at vlchurch.tv forward slash messages online. You can listen to the sermon there. It's already uploaded for you. But last week we saw that the zombie apocalypse is not just a figment of our imagination. The zombie apocalypse, or an event similar to what we see in the films, is something the Bible recorded for us over almost 2,500 years ago through the prophet Zechariah and Zechariah chapter 14. And so we begin to unpack the, what, what would happen, what were the events surrounding this zombie apocalypse and, and what was going to be uh, happening. It is a plague that the Lord sends out to turn the people that were fighting against God and his people into rotting corpses, a plague that would cause them to fight against each other. It is a plague of judgment sent to punish the nations who set themselves out to fight against the Lord when he returned, and most commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon. This is, involves uh, the Revel book of the Revelation or the end time events. And as we saw last week, the only people that were immune to this plague that was unleashed across the world were those who were protected by trusting and placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, it, when Jesus returned, when he returns to set up his eternal kingdom, he rescues the faithful, rescues the followers and believers of Jesus, and he protects those from the judgment that he unleashes into the world. But this plague affects the entire world, and it will even affect the United States of America. And as I was thinking about this, the question I had was, how could a nation that in its founding that began, literally, if you go back to the Mayflower Compact, when the pilgrims were crossing the Atlantic Ocean for the first time. In the Mayflower Compact, it says that they were coming to the new world to advance the kingdom of God, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were coming for God's glory. They were not just escaping religious persecution, but they were coming to set up a nation that would reflect the beauty and, and, and will of God in the world. So how does a once Christian nation become counted among the nations of evil that fight against God and his people in the end times? How does that happen? How do, how do we go from being a godly people to being an ungodly people? Jesus said in Matthew 24, and, and Paul confirms in the, the book of Thessalonians, both chapters speak of end time, or both books speak of end time events, but Paul also says there, that in the last days, 
what's considered the, the last time or the last time period before Jesus' return. The last period of time, in the last days, there will be a great falling away. The Bible uses a word called apostasy, which means people who once believed something will turn away and reject the very thing that they believe. There will be many who turn away from their faith in Christ and will actually stand against Jesus and his people when he comes. And Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says this about even the state of the world that he was living in 2,000 years ago. In verse 7, he says, This lawlessness about the rejection, this falling away, this spirit of, of antichrist that draws people away from God, says this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. So this slow descent from people being on fire, praising God, churches being filled, the, the, even just our nation and other nations that have churches all over the world where every Sunday you can see them filled with people, there is a slow descent, a spirit that is leading hearts away, and it has been this way since Jesus went to heaven the first time and will continue until the restraining force that is preventing it from unleashing into the world moves out of the way. This slow descent is already at work in our world. It is under the power and influence of this spirit of Antichrist. So even though people of the world will be turned into what we call today the walking dead in this plague of judgment, at some point in the future, there are those who even now are beginning to be overwhelmed by a similar sickness. At some point in the future, God will unleash this plague when he returns, turning people into the walking dead physically. But even now, there are those who are being overwhelmed by a similar plague, a similar sickness, not on a physical level, but on a spiritual level. And those, I believe, will be among those that fall away and reject Jesus in the end times. And I believe that not just in churches all over the world, but there may even be some walking dead among us in this room today. James, in James chapter 2, verse 26, the Apostle James says, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is what? Dead without works. So as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without works. Faith without works is dead. What this means isn't that we get to heaven by doing good works. What this means is that if there is no evidence in your life to show that there is a genuineness to your faith, then your faith is dead. It's just lip service. Yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm a follower of Christ. But if your life doesn't show any fruit, if there's nothing being produced in your life to show that you are a child of God, then your faith is dead. It's just merely lip service. And I would also contend that not only faith without works is dead, but also works without faith is also dead. That's religion. That says, I can get to heaven just by the good things that I do. I don't need to trust in Jesus. I don't need to repent of my sin. I don't need to depend on anything else other than my own righteousness to get me into heaven because at the end of the day, I feel like I'm just a good person. 
There are people all over, and you encounter them day in and day out, that try to justify themselves by how good of a person they really are. They judge themselves by good works. But the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, chapter 6, he writes, It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. You cannot please God even in the slightest without faith. You can't do it. Faithless work is not pleasing. It is the opposite. It is unpleasant. And salvation applies. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. There's nothing you can do to earn God's forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing you can do. There's no righteousness, no good work that's equal to the gift God gave you through Jesus Christ on the cross. No matter how much good we do, without faith, we cannot receive salvation. Because salvation is not earned. It is received by faith. It is a gift. So there's no working your way into heaven, and there's no working your way out of hell. You must receive the gift of salvation. And this happens when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When you repent of your sins and you say, God, I'm going all in with Jesus. He is Lord. He is going to direct my life. I'm going to place my faith and trust in his sacrifice on the cross, in his substitutionary death, and in the power of his resurrection. And when that moment happens, when you make that conscious decision to say, it's about Jesus, not about me, then salvation can come. And those who try to have faith but don't allow that faith to produce good works, or those who work really hard at being righteous but do so not out of a response of faith, they are deceived into believing they are something they are not. Because the reality is they are the walking dead. And Jesus gives a stern warning to a church in the book of Revelation who was in a similar situation. They had a a nice church. They were full of affluent and well-off people. They were professed believers. They, They said they had faith, but their lives were not representing the faith that they said they possessed. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, you can turn there. We're, we're also going to be in Matthew, but our, our, one of our main texts is Revelation 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. This is one of the letters Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia, the seven letters to the seven churches. And this letter was written to the church of Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3, here's what Jesus says to this church. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are lukewarm, you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich and I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, this church was just like any other church you might attend on a Sunday morning. 
They, they had everything going on. They had all the programs. They had all the ministries. They looked the part. They talked the part. This church professed themselves to be born again. They were probably all baptized. They probably took communion on a regular basis. They met for worship on Sunday. Their praise team was probably kicking because it sounds like they had a lot of money, and money buys a lot of cool stuff. So I imagine they had a lot of things going on. But the thing was that something was very wrong with their spiritual lives. They were not dependent on God, and it showed in how they lived their lives. Their attitude was that since they were so richly blessed, that they didn't need God for anything. I don't need to depend on God. I have enough money to take care of that. I have enough blessing. I have enough land. I have enough family. I have all of these things. They didn't need God for anything. For them, God and spirituality just made them feel good. I get together, I get to feel good, I got that boost, now I can go about my week. It made them feel some sense of emotional fulfillment. But again, at the end of the day, their life was not determined by the word of God or the call of God or the mission of God or the kingdom of God. Their lives were directed and determined by their very own comfort. This was Laodicea. They were not the sacrificing kind. The sacrificing kind, the believers who would give their lives for the mission of the church. No, these were the, don't stretch me, don't challenge me, don't make me feel uncomfortable type of crowd. And because they were so dedicated to comfort, they were neither hot nor cold. They didn't heat anything up, and they didn't cool anything off. They were stagnant in their spiritual life. They were lukewarm and disgusting to the taste. I tell my kids all the time whenever like, like we're out playing or, or whatever, don't, don't give me a, a warm bottle of water. I think warm water tastes like sweat. You know, it's gross. Like when you're working hard and you're sweating to death, you want a nice, cold, refreshing bottle of water. You want to pull it right out of the fridge. You want it to frost over just as you pull it out into the air, and you want to chug that thing as fast as possible. You know, you want something to be cold to refresh you. Or when you're freezing cold outside, like spending all Saturday in the rain and sleet at soccer games and football games and you're freezing, you want a nice hot cup of coffee or a hot chocolate, something to warm you up, to comfort you. You don't want a cup that's been sitting out all day and you tip me and that's nasty. It's nasty. You want something that's either hot or cold. This is what Jesus is telling this church he said, you're not hot, you don't heat anything up, and you're not cold, you don't refresh anything that, that's been overheated, you're lukewarm, and that's disgusting to me, and I will spit you out of my mouth. And the thing is, is in this culture, in this world, I'm afraid many in our culture and in our time fit this description more so than the sacrificial description. There are some who are so dedicated to their comfort and ease in our modern times that they can't engage in a ministry that, because that pushes them to commitment, sacrifice, and excellence. They don't want to pursue growth where they might one day step into a leadership role in the church because they would rather abandon ship and go down the street where they won't be challenged, where they won't be stretched, where they won't have the tension because for them, their relationship with God ultimately is about what they want and not about what God wants for them. We see this all the time. 
They don't pray like they should. They don't read their Bible like they should. Their only real spiritual desire is to find a church or a group of people that makes them feel good, that has all the bells and whistles, and doesn't require them to change or to be uncomfortable. But the truth is God has much more in store for us than just a good feeling when we gather together. He has life transformation in store. Paul, the book of Romans, says God foreknew who would believe in him. Romans chapter 8, he said God predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. It's not enough that we believe. God wants us to become like Jesus. He wants to transform our lives. God's desire for his followers, for those who trust in Jesus, is not to be happy. His desire for us is to be holy. Because God knows when we are holy, we will be happy because we will be like Jesus Christ. And that transformation from unholy to holy doesn't come easy. Jesus said if we're to follow him, we're to take up our cross and follow him. The people of that day knew what that meant. It meant certain death. It meant sacrifice. It meant struggle. In order to do God's will, Jesus himself had to give his life for the mission God sent before him. It takes commitment and sacrifice to go through the fires of refinement and become everything God wants you to be. Something the Spirit spoke to me this week. He said, you can't walk in faith without trudging through refining fire. You cannot walk in faith without trudging through refining fire. If you think back into the story of the Bible, just the narrative of the Bible, Noah had to build an ark before it had ever rained before and trust that God was going to rescue his family. And he had to sit back and watch as God destroyed all civilization from one end of the earth to the other. He had to go through a refinement fire. He had to go through an intense circumstance where he witnessed every piece of life, every bit of life destroyed in an instant and believed that God was going to take care of him. Abraham, God said, hey, Abraham, go to the land I'm going to show you. He had to leave the place of comfort, his family, his friends, his, his circle of peers. He had to leave that without any notice to go to a land he had never been without even a GPS or map to get there. God just says, go and I'll show you. I'll tell you when you get there. He had to trust. He had to be refined through refining fire. Moses had to face off against the strongest king and nation of all the known world at the time. He had to lead his people through the waters of the Red Sea and lead a group of grumbling and complaining people through inclement and horrific situations in the desert before even getting to the promised land. He had to be refined in fire. Joshua led the people into the promised land by facing giants at every turn. David had to defeat Goliath. Daniel had to go into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go into the fiery furnace. The prophets faced opposition at every turn. Jesus went to the cross. The disciples were martyred and persecuted and dispersed all over the world. And John, the one who gave us the book of Revelation, was boiled alive, survived, and then left for dead on the Isle of Patmos. You cannot walk in faith without trudging through refining fire. Faith is going to bring refinement. 
Faith requires refining fire. It requires you to step out from where you're comfortable, to put yourself out there, to risk comfort and ease for an opportunity to see God move in your life. Laodicea had worldly riches, but those were not the riches that they needed. Jesus continued in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. He said, so I advise you to buy gold. Gold in the Bible often represents righteousness or the righteousness of God. So he's saying, buy gold from me. Jesus wasn't peddling gold coins. He was peddling righteousness that comes from the Father. He says, buy from me gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments. White represents purity. We see in Revelation the church gathered before the bride that made itself ready just before Jesus returns, all wearing white garments. This represents purity and holiness. Jesus is saying, buy white garments for me so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness. And buy ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. Ointment or anointing oil or, or that salve to open the eyes represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that we have revelation, so that we can see, know, and understand the truth. God is telling this church that's steeped in comfort, that's worshiping its own comfort, I've got something more for you, something better, something eternal. Choose to buy from me. Verse 19, he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. And I believe God is crying out to the church in this modern age, turn from your indifference. You see, even God loves the walking dead. God loves even those who he judges in the end of days. He gave Jesus for the entire world. The death of Christ is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. But what God knows is that it's indifference that is killing the walking dead today. It's indifference. It is not that God doesn't love lukewarm Christians. He loves everyone equally, wholly, and passionately. But it's that his heart is breaking for those who are so close to being who they need to be, to having this relationship with God, but yet because of the state of their faith, they are so far away. They acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but their hearts are so far from him. And he continually makes this invitation to this church, repent, change your ways, turn from the trajectory of your life, and head in the direction of faith towards a relationship with God. Go all in with Jesus. Give him your heart. Because their current spirituality is centered on themselves. This group of people was religious without a relationship. They were worshiping without true works of faith. And sooner or later, if things didn't change, God was going to spit them out of his mouth. And we know that is the day the true believers are separated from false believers at the Lord's return. These Christians, these Laodicean Christians, were dead men walking. And it was only a matter of time before the true nature of their hearts were revealed. And the question is, is how did they get this way? At some point, a missionary, an apostle, and a disciple started this church. How does a person who's presented the gospel of Jesus Christ that seems to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, how do they go from that moment where they say yes to God to becoming lukewarm and becoming a walking spiritual zombie? Rather being set on fire with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, they become a lukewarm Christian. And I believe the answer is found in a parable 
that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. This is a famous parable. It's called the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, here's what Jesus says to his disciples as he's talking about the kingdom of God. He says, later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside a lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. And then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. And many told stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anytime Jesus says that, anyone with ears to hear, he's wanting you to pay close attention to see not just with your physical heart, but with your spiritual heart what he's trying to say. And in this story, Jesus is illustrating some truths about different responses to the gospel, to the truth, to the message of who he is, to, to the offer of salvation. Different circumstances that arise when people hear the truth and when it's revealed. And I want to pay close attention to the seed that was choked out by the thorns. There's three or four different seeds, but there's one in particular that was choked out by the thorns. If you keep reading in Matthew 13, Jesus begins to tell his disciples what the story meant. He begins to reveal the truth behind the story. And in verse 22, here's what the Lord says about the seeds that are choked out by, this, by the thorns. He says, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out, read that with me, by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of of this life in the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. They hear the message, but they're so consumed with this world that they don't, they don't produce any fruit. This, in my opinion, is what happened to Laodicea. They were so consumed with being comfortable and being comfortable in this world that not only they didn't but they couldn't choose to walk by faith because it would require them to give up the very things that make them feel so comfortable. You see, for a child of God, for a follower of Jesus, it shouldn't be a sacrifice to prioritize your commitment and service to the church. But for many, it is. It shouldn't be a sacrifice to prioritize spending much needed time getting alone with God, communing with His Holy Spirit, studying the Scripture, and allowing the Scripture to bring that life transformation. But for many, it is. It shouldn't be a sacrifice to organize your schedule so that your main focus is kingdom work and ministry, but for many, it is. 
It shouldn't be a sacrifice to view your workplace as a mission field, the very place God has sent you to evangelize and bring hope and light to the world, to leverage your relationships in that workplace, that sphere of influence for the kingdom of God. But for many, it is. It shouldn't be a sacrifice to give generously so the work of God can go out, so people can be blessed through his love and grace. But for many, it is. And it shouldn't be a sacrifice Because those who are walking by faith understand the truth. What Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. Jesus gives us a promise. In Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek the kingdom above everything else and live righteously, and he will what? Give you everything you need. Seek his kingdom first. Live righteously And you will have everything you need. You see, it's not a sacrifice to put the kingdom above all else. It's not a sacrifice to pursue the mission of God and the kingdom of God above everything else. Because God has put himself on the line to take care of everything you need. It's not a sacrifice. It would be a sacrifice if we knew we wouldn't know how things were going to work out or, or that we wouldn't be okay and we're just doing that and it's going to bring harm or damage. It doesn't bring harm to prioritize the kingdom. It brings blessing. But what happens to people is that we fall into the materialism trap. And don't get me wrong, I'm guilty of this too. There is a materialism trap that is powered by the lure of popularity. Well, if I do this, then everybody's going to like me. The lure of acceptance. I can be a part of this group if I wear these clothes and drive this kind of car and hang out at these different places. The lure of keeping up with the Joneses. What will people think if I don't have those kinds of shoes? The lure of needing more than what you actually need. The lure of other people's demands. And it takes our eyes off the mission of God and sets us right down into the comfort pit. And the comfort pit is a pit that kills spiritual growth and effectiveness and it is ever so difficult to climb out of. Try telling someone who's in over their head in debt that they can't afford their house, they can't afford their cars, if you would just sell those things and minimize, you could actually be right with God. How do you think that conversation is going to go? It's a difficult thing to climb out of the comfort pit. But the truth of the word of God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In 1 John 2.15, this is a verse that we need to wrestle with in this place, that we need to grapple with what God is saying to us through this verse. John writes to the church, He says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. I'm going to read that again. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Wrestle with that. Let that sink in. Laodicea praised Jesus, sang to Jesus, gathered to encourage, went through the spiritual motions, but they were so married to the world, they did not have a dependence on God and did not have a relationship 
with God. They were about to be spewed out. Why? Because they loved the world and did not have the love of the Father in them. The seed that was sown and choked out by the thorns was choked out by the worries of this world and the lure of wealth. Their eyes were not on the kingdom. Their eyes were on everything else. Now, this doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things of the world. I believe God has created many things for our enjoyment. But when the things of this world get in the way of God's will for our lives and gets in the way of God's mission for his church, then it is a problem. See, in the comfort pit, we work overtime to afford the car payment we can't really afford. And therefore, we can't give generously the way God wants us to give. In the comfort pit, we allow our schedules to be dominated by non-eternal activities such as sports or vacation homes, and therefore we can't commit to gather and be in a life group and encourage people in the church or serve faithfully going out on the streets and evangelizing, telling people about Jesus. We can't grow and to lead a ministry because we just don't have the time to prioritize the kingdom. In Hebrews 10.25, the writer of Hebrews Encouraging the church, he says this. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Don't forsake the gathering together. Don't forsake getting together with the church. Don't forsake getting together in your small group. Don't forsake having that time of fellowship, that time of worship. He says, do it so much the more. It should happen more and more and more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because the last days is not a good time. Jesus told us there will be wars and rumors of wars. People are going to fall away. Persecution is going to come. There's going to be difficulty and hardship. He said, in this life, you will have trouble and trial, but don't fear, don't worry about it. He says, because I've overcome the world. There is a promise coming. Jesus is coming to get us. But until he returns, we should get together more and more so that we can encourage each other to stand fast, stay true, Don't give up. Don't fall away. Keep pursuing the kingdom. Keep being a light. Keep telling people about Jesus. Keep walking in faith. Keep giving God glory and keep seeing the world turned upside down. But the habit of some people, and you can see it in our culture today, doesn't matter what church you attend or where you go, is that people are not pressing into church, but they're pulling away. Recent statistics Go back over 10 years, and they said it used to be that an active attender in a church would be someone who attended two, two Sundays out of the month. That used to be the given statistic. Now it's one Sunday every eight weeks. We are not coming together more and more. We are pulling away. We're not stepping up to grow. We're shrinking back and staying disconnected. And the writer of Hebrews says, especially as we see the return of Jesus getting closer, it has not been more closer than it is today in all of history. We should be getting together more and more, pressing in together, encouraging each other more. And what we have to realize is how we prioritize God's kingdom, how we prioritize his church reflects how we will prioritize his mission in the world. Our passion for the bride of Jesus 
will reflect our passion to be on mission in his kingdom. And ministry happens here in this place. When we gather week after week, when the kids' ministry is ministering to our kids, and we're gathering here to worship and to hear from God and to pray with one another and to lean on one another. When we're in our small groups, ministry happens there. But the work of the ministry God intends for us happens out there. It happens on mission. This is the place where we recharge and get encouraged to go back out into the world and be the light. Ministry happens in here, but the work of the ministry happens out there on the streets as the church invades the darkness with the light and hope and power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what makes a person a zombified follower of Jesus, if I may use that term loosely, someone who's ruled by comfort that's neither hot nor cold, is that if you are not growing in your relationship with Christ, if you don't know Jesus more today than you did yesterday, if you're not seeing God work in your life in ways that you haven't experienced before, if you're not having encounters, if you're not hearing his voice, if you're not learning in the scriptures, if you're not learning how to utilize times of prayer and meditation and really encounter the presence of God in your life to walk in the Spirit If you're not growing, then you're not steaming or freezing. You're not hot, nor are you cold. If you're not committing, if you're not sacrificing, and you're just enjoying the benefits of those who are, you are a spiritual zombie. And faith without works is dead. And the sad but true reality is that prior to the return of Jesus is that there will be a day of great falling away in which people who said they belong to Jesus will turn on him, they'll betray and fight against one another, and they will join in the armies that meet him to fight when he returns. And I believe that that is why Jesus makes this plea to the church of Laodicea. And I echo this out, not just here, but over the internet, to all those who listen on the podcast, anyone that might hear this message, I echo the words of Christ today. Beginning in verse 19 of Revelation 3, he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Where is your heart today? Verse 20, he says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. And those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The Spirit is speaking today. God is calling. Turn from your indifference. Open the door of your heart to him and say, Jesus, I'm not living according to comfort and ease. I'm surrendering my life to you. Come in. Let's have a relationship where I can know you and be known by you. And you can change my life. He says, turn from your indifference. And I believe he's making this plea to us today. And so my question to you today is, will you choose to lay down your comfort? And surrender your life to the Lord. Maybe God for a while has been calling you to go into full-time ministry. Maybe he's been calling you to be a missionary overseas. Or maybe he's just been speaking to your heart saying, son, daughter, 
Wake up every day with purpose. Recognize it is your purpose in life to make your workplace, your neighborhood, your mission field. He's calling you to evangelize those around you, to influence your peers, to make Jesus famous among your circle of influence. That I'm not going to just wake up without purpose anymore. I'm going to wake up committing to tell somebody today about Jesus, to invite somebody to church, to take a step forward in my spiritual journey, to ask questions about things that I've thought about for a long time, but I've just put off so that I can have an encounter with God and I can grow in my understanding and walk in faith. Whatever it is, will you choose that today? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment as we go into a time of prayer. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for writing these letters. Thank you for your parables. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you, God, that you were not content to let us just wander this world like sheep without a shepherd. But you left this here for us that we may know the truth and that the truth will set us free. God, I just repent of my indifference. And I ask you, God, the places that are in my heart that are not fully surrendered, Lord, that even today that I would give them to you. And I pray that for everyone here, that as we see the days of Christ, the day of his return getting closer, Lord, we wouldn't pull away from the kingdom, that we wouldn't pull away from the body of Christ that you've called us to, that we wouldn't put a pull away from growing, from leading, from being disciples who make disciples, from standing and having a true faith that is not only lip service, but also backs up what we say by the way we live. That we become a church and every person is driven by love, love for God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love for our neighbor as ourselves. That we're committed to excellence, that our lives would be lived for your glory. That we'd be committed to this body that you've called us to, God. And that we would be filled with your spirit so that your power can be evident in our lives and you can manifest in every way you so desire. I pray right now for every heart that as we have a time of prayer, God, you would lead everyone to respond to say, Lord, I'm going all in with you today. In Jesus' name. As the music begins to play, with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, just in an attitude of prayer, if you have a prayer need, no matter what it is, maybe today you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the very first time. You recognize you don't have a relationship with God. Right now is the time just to leave your seat and come forward. My wife and I will be here to pray with you. Maybe you're just struggling or there's something going on in your life and you would like prayer. We'll be down here. It doesn't matter what it is. But for the next few moments, we just want to go into a time of prayer. Maybe God's getting a hold of your heart and you know he's calling you to something. But now's the time to respond in the name of Jesus. In just a few moments, we'll receive our offering and we'll be dismissed. But let's go into an attitude of prayer.